Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. We have the pleasure today of speaking with Donna Harmon, who is an Israeli and many other nationalities also we'll hear about in a minute, but she's a journalist, a writer, extraordinarily talented, who's also doing some really fascinating things in the world now. And as part of our trying to give a full picture of the mosaic of the sorts of things that Israelis are doing both in Israel and around the world, uh, we heard about uh, Donna's work from Yotam Polizer of Israel, whom we spoke with a few weeks ago, and uh, really wanted to reach out to Donna to hear from her about some of the really extraordinary things that she's been doing and is still doing. So first of all, Donna, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. And um, why don't we just begin by... Um, asking you to tell us a little bit quickly about your background, where you grew up, where you were educated, and how you got into the line of work that you're into. Um, okay. Hi, Daniel. So nice to be on your program. And thanks to your Tom for introducing me to you guys. Um, my name is Donna. I'm from Jerusalem. I was actually born in Boston, but I grew up in Jerusalem. And um, I, what else can I say? I am a journalist. I went to college in the United States. I went um, and then I did graduate school in, in Britain where I studied Islamic studies. And I still take a lot of Arabic classes early in the morning with my teacher Ahmed in uh, Cairo, but my Arabic is not perfect yet. And um, I've been writing for years. I wrote um, for, I started at the Associated Press as a local hire in Jerusalem. Um, and then I worked um, for the Jerusalem Post for a while. And then I worked for many years for the Christian Science Monitor. I was based in Africa. I love Africa. And I lived in Nairobi for a couple years. And then I went and um, covered actually Iraq and Afghanistan when there were wars going on there, also for the Christian Science Monitor. And then I worked in Washington, D.C. for them in the United States for a couple years. And then in Mexico and covered Latin America, where I opened a bureau for the Christian Science Monitor. They did a joint bureau for a while with USA Today, which is a strange combination, but it somehow worked. And then I don't really remember exactly what I did, but I ended up at Haaretz, Great Haaretz, where I worked for many years. First as um, I, I worked on the English edition, then I worked as the Europe correspondent for the Hebrew edition, and then I don't exactly know what I was doing, but I was writing stories for them for a very long time. And then I shifted and started doing more and more freelance pieces for different magazines and newspapers mostly in English, I would say. And I'm based in London with my husband, Josh, who's great. And I also have, we have a, a house in Jaffa, which I prefer. So I come there as much as I can. And my whole family's in Jerusalem. My brother, Oren, actually just moved from Tel Aviv back to Jerusalem. So we're real Jerusalemites, bucking the trend. And I should point out, speaking of bucking the trends, that you're actually speaking to us from Albania, correct? 
Yes. So I've been really involved and obsessed with this um, group of Afghans that I helped um, with their evacuation in August and September. And I'm here with the second group of evacuees who I love basically like my children at this point. And um, I've been staying with them here on and off, but mostly on since we arrived in really early October at a refugee camp, so to speak, in Albania, although it's not what you imagine a refugee camp might look like. It's as you don't see me, but I'm sitting in a supermarket. I mean, it's kind of a resort, not the greatest, most fancy resort you could think of, to put it mildly, but a resort of sorts, and um, where they're housing about uh, 3,000 and some refugees from Afghanistan in Albania these past couple months. Well, let's talk about the whole uh, Afghani rescue mission or evacuation that you've been involved with, which is the major story that is the last, most recent part of your life. And obviously, the horrors of what's going on in, in Afghanistan are very much on people's minds. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, how this whole thing got started, what you do and how, what you did? Tell us the story of this whole Afghani operation of yours. So, like I mentioned, I'd been to Afghanistan a couple times as a journalist, mostly with embeds, which means that you go around with American or with NATO troops, and you don't really see that much. You see a lot that has to do with what the troops are doing, but you don't get a com very complete sense of the country. But that was fascinating and beautiful, and the country is, in parts, really stunning. I spent a lot of time in an area called Nuristan, where a lot of the kids have blue eyes and just beautiful people, beautiful landscapes. I mean, most of the time I was on the army base and just went out. And when you go out, you go out usually in a tank. So you're looking through like little slits. I mean, it's not like you properly see the country. But then I had the really good luck a couple of years ago of um, I, I, I got to write a longer piece for the New York Times about, um, about the all-girls robotics team based in Herat, Afghanistan. So this was a little team that was like the little team that could. They sort of couldn't first get visas to the United States, then they got their visas, then they went and they swept kind of the robotics competition world, the world of robotics competition by storm, and everyone loved them. They were not actually like so totally incredibly amazing at robotics, I have to say, but they were just so fabulous and they kept winning the Inspiration Award and the Courage in Action Awards. And anyway, I loved them completely. And the New York Times said, why don't we write a story about them? It's about Muslim girls. It's about Afghanistan. It's about STEM. It's about all good things that people are interested in. And I spent months with them. I mean, I hesitate to... to um, to tell people to go look up the story because the story as sometimes happens in journalism came out really short and not quite what I wanted and maybe not even that great, but the experience of working on the story was just uh, tremendous. And I had like eight, nine months, if you can believe it. Thank you, New York times going back and forth to Afghanistan with these girls and going out on the road and doing their robotics competitions with them. And um, also, because I always get overly involved, I would say, in anything I do um, in a sort of almost unprofessional journalism way. Anyway, I um, fell in love with these girls a lot. They're these sort of 16, 17-year-old girls, and we kept in touch all these years, and that was like a little slice of my life until this August ran came about, and then they all were getting in touch with me. Not so much because um, they thought I could do anything, but because I think that it was such a chaotic mess there as the Taliban suddenly took over in mid-August, and no one knew what to do. So people who had any connection to a foreigner, especially, they just started writing to them on WhatsApp or on Facebook or you know, reaching out to anyone they thought might help them with an idea or with a way out of the country. And I got a lot of SOSs, so to speak, 
from girls I knew and some people I didn't know. Hi, I'm a friend of this, this, and this on the robotic club. Hi, I'm not on the robotic club, but my second cousin twice removed knows Hilai or knows Ramesa, et etc. et cetera. And, um, and where, where I didn't know what to do. That, where, where were you physically when you started getting these SOS messages? Okay, believe it or not, I was in Venice, Italy, because I was on summer holiday with my husband. So we're in these beautiful locations. And the entire time, if you look at all our holiday snaps, I'm just glued to my phone. I mean, it was probably the least romantic holiday he's ever been on. And then I put a little post on Instagram, which I don't usually do. But, you know, I felt compelled enough to do that. And then I'm like, what kind of like, you know, that's not too too big a act or too big a step to take to put up an Instagram post. And then I suggested to Haaretz that I write a magazine piece for them. And I did, I wrote a magazine piece and then I called the girls and tried to see what was, you know, a little dig a little deeper, what's happening with them. What are their plans? What options do they have? Do they have any options? And then I finished the article. And by then I was constantly thinking, well, is there anything else that I possibly could do? And I guess I sort of thought no, but on the other hand, I was like, well, I could try. And so then I just did that. I literally reached out to anyone I knew and asked if they could think of any way to help these girls out of Afghanistan. And they had specific asks. And in August, it was to get into the airport. Like if you could get into the airport in those last days of August, you had a really good chance of getting on an evacuation flight. Of course, if you get on a manifest of an evacuation flight, even better. But just the act of getting into the airport, which was near impossible, and there were just throngs of people surrounding that airport and Taliban surrounding it, and you really needed to have the right connections and the right pieces of paper in hand to be able to get through checkpoints. And even that wasn't a given because plenty of people went around and around the airport for hours. And I'm talking about like 30 hours, 40 hours, you know, typically it could be a 10 minute drive to get into the airport. People just trying to get into the airport, not to mention all the people who are just standing in a crush of human beings outside. So, um, but I knew that there were some buses that were getting in. I knew other journalists actually. Uh, so who was helping out during this time um, with a sort of lack of official helping out where a lot of people who care about Afghanistan. So it ended up being a lot of journalists who'd worked there and also a lot of ex-service people, especially Americans or Brits who had worked there over the years and had close contacts with Afghans. So, and really people reached out to each other and people shared information and tried to help each other. And from here to there to there, I got involved in an operation of trying to bring a couple of the girls and also my interpreter, actually, Rafi, who had been my translator when I was doing my projects in Herat, into the airport. And at the end, we did manage to bring Rafi, his wife, Elham, who was seven months pregnant, and their two kids into the airport. And to be honest, that's been like the greatest success for me, quote unquote, because he is now living in his own apartment in Virginia. I mean, he really like zoomed out of there. First, they went to Germany. Uh, he got on a German bus into the airport, then on a German sort of um, evacuation flight to Germany. Then they moved him to an American base in Spain. And he had already applied for something called a SIV, which is a special immigrant visa to the United States. So I was able, with, a, with the great help, I always say this, of a lot of other people to help him find his pathway to the United States. And then, you know, everyone was staying in these crowded um, complicated situation 
military camps in the United States. But luckily for him, luckily, his wife, Elham, was having some pregnancy complications, which are now finished, and she's having a great pregnancy. But because of that, they were like a little stressed, and they moved him out to a hotel. So everyone was having the worst time ever in the army camps, and Rafi was living it up in some Maryland hotel, and now is in his own house. And they sent me pictures of their first Thanksgiving, and he's now looking for a job if anyone wants to hire an amazing young man in uh, Virginia. So that was Rafi got up, and a lot of the girls... First of all, they're from Herat, which is a totally different city. It's up near the border in Iran. So uh, we, uh, um, when I say we, I started getting girlfriends involved. I have a lot of amazing girlfriends. And um, I just was writing to my group of girlfriends in different, different WhatsApp groups. And they were sort of coming together to, we bonded together as a team. And one of them is my girlfriend, Ronia Bulafia, who's a filmmaker in Tel Aviv. And we started working together. And then another friend, Charlene Seidel, who is um, running the Leistag Foundation. I see you nodding, so I think you know her. She's a great friend. And and, and people who like had day jobs and then these two lawyers in um, Canada, because I always had an idea that Canada might be a destination for um, any Afghans that we could manage to help evacuate out. And then these women, Amanda and Michelle. And then, of course, also very key to the story is that Ronnie basically introduced me to Yotam, who runs um, the NGO Israel, but in a way, to begin with, he came just as an individual with experience in refugee issues. Although, to be fair, not your Tom and not any of us, and none of us had experience in what we were doing. And we always said that to ourselves, that we didn't know what we were doing. But then when you asked other people, no one knew what they were doing. And even right now, no one knows what they were doing. So we were all a bit in the same boat. And the main thing was we just decided that we would try to do something. And now how did um, you get these people out in the end? In other words, I want to jump forward to yeah. you so got some, how, many people, how many people were you able to get out with the group of people that you're working with? So first, Rafi and his family came out. So that was four people. And another woman, Halai, who we were helping. And then at the last minute, someone else helped her. So we can't count her <laughs> in our group. But she's a really dear friend. And funny enough, she ended up helping us. But that's a whole other story. Then um, there were 42 mainly women, 35 of them are girls and women. And that group is some of the girls from the robotics team and their families. And then we linked up with another group that was working and came with some financing and some connections in Canada. And they were taking care of 19 members of the all girls bicycling team from Bamiyan, mainly the Bamiyan region. So now we're with- I mean, how, what, what did it take to get the, the robotics people out or the bicycling people out? I mean, what, what does it mean you got them out? How did it happen? So that first group of 42, which was our first mission, we grouped them, we got them together. Most of them, I mean, the different groups did know each other, the cyclists knew the cyclists, and these and that. but um, we then had someone inside who helped organize a bus and we had someone inside um, who gave us some, who organized some volunteers who then eased our way, so to speak, up from Kabul. So we had the girls meet at different corners when we told them and they met at the different corners. The bus went around, picked up everyone from our group and then drove up north to Kunduz. We were looking for a way out of the country. And I mean, obviously you either go over a border, overland, or you fly out of the country. And that, that, that was the very end and end of August and flying didn't seem an option at all. So we decided to go overland. And I mean, just like, I mean, we didn't, even I've been in Afghanistan, I wasn't sure where the border crossings were. And none of my other friends who got involved really had ever given much thought to what borders 
border Afghanistan. And then we're like, oh, should we try Uzbekistan? And we tried everything. We didn't try Iran and Pakistan because that's not something an Israeli group is really going to be the best at. But we did try all the other borders of the country. And then at the end, we found, I mean, we found it took forever through using every connection. Everyone just didn't hesitate to call anyone they'd ever heard of who might somehow have some connection to help us. And then we did get help and we got permission to cross over through Tajikistan, which is no small feat because there's millions of people, millions of Afghans at the border wanting to go to Tajikistan. And then Dadam R-42 got sort of escorted across the border. Not only, other people also went across the border and plenty of the people went across the border illegally, but ours got across very legally. Um, and then Ronnie, my girlfriend and I rushed to Tajikistan to welcome them there and sort of um, reorganize ourselves to see where they can go next because there was Tajikistan was only letting them through. It was kind of a puzzle you had to constantly be putting together and shuffling when pieces of it got lost, you would have to fill it in with other pieces. So um, we got them out through Tajikistan. Then we needed another country for them to go to because Tajikistan wanted them out soon. There was just a transit. And we looked everywhere for another country to send them to. And any other country agreed to take them on condition that then they would soon leave that second country to go to a third country. So it was sort of all. And we couldn't get any third country to accept them as like immigrants because that's a super big deal and takes a lot of process and a lot of time. But we did manage to get... Can Canadians, important Canadians to say, we will look favorably upon this group enough so that we could sort of finesse the letters and, you know, add a list of, and somehow with confidence say that these people are moving on. They're not coming. And then we basically looked all over the world and tried everywhere. If I tell you, we called everyone and anywhere with any connections. And at the end of all places, um, Abu Dhabi, let us come and bring our group of 42 there through all sorts of I mean, you never know what made things work because we were trying so many things at the same time and then suddenly something would shift and, and be possible. So they flew from Tajikistan to Abu Dhabi, right? Yeah. So we crossed, they crossed the border into Tajikistan. We actually had to procure a lot of them passports. They didn't even have passports and you can't cross borders without passports. So that's a whole crazy story. I don't know if your Tom told you that story. He did, yeah? I no, he didn't tell no. us. Oh, so, well, this is apropos of Israelis helping out. So Sally Oren, who used to be married to Michael Oren, spent all those years in Washington. And she is like, has a heroic, you know, walk on role to this story because we remembered that, and she's also on the board of Israel and a good friend of my mom's and her son is a good friend of my brother's, basically everyone's friends. And she, someone remembered that when she was in Washington, she knew the Afghan ambassador's wife to Washington. So we called her to see what could come of that connection. And it turned out that that Afghan ambassador, the former Afghan ambassador to Washington and his wife, friends of Sally Oren, had later been moved and were now in Moscow as the Afghan ambassador to Moscow, except for now, of course, the Taliban are in control. So they're almost refugees like everyone else, except for they're very good refugees to know because they have the keys to the embassy in Moscow. And therefore, believe it or not, could go into the embassy and make us passports. It was like a movie. I mean, we couldn't even believe this was happening. And then they sent they the passports. They legal Afghani passports, basically. No, they were legal. They were legal, except for that they were questionable because they were all made after the fall of the government on the same day in Moscow without any biometrics and without any signature. So they didn't look so good. And we actually got in trouble later 
in the game with the second group with these passports. But it was a miraculous and a brilliant idea that someone had to go through this whole um, passport drama. And then the passports were sent into Tajikistan and they came out of Afghanistan into Tajikistan, met up with us. We spent a couple days with them. But by the way, being like hosted, I think that the Tajik government thought that we were some sort of VIP group, which, you know, we are in our own mind. But I think that because we got so many people to call them, including everyone, I don't even know what was secret and what was not secret, but any world leader that ever went to anyone's bar mitzvah or any cocktail party that we could possibly get their number and get them any oligarch, everyone called and got us in there. And, you know, we got there, there was like a banquet for us with a famous Tajiki singer. Anyway, and then we flew out of Tajikistan to Abu Dhabi also, and Yotam met us there. And then we got um, uh, Silvan Adam, for example, who is a well-known Israeli Canadian and a big philanthropist and also loves cycling. Um, he paid for the flight. So we got a charter flight out of Tajikistan to um, United Arab Emirates, where we left our group telling them that we would, you know, in a month or so, they would be heading to Canada. And unfortunately, that did not happen. And they're still in Abu Dhabi now. And Abu Dhabi is very generous and amazing to let them stay there. And they pay for their stay there. But they're in a closed camp. And it's very difficult. I would say by now, there's about 10,000 Afghans in this camp, which is in the desert. And it's not a refugee camp with, you know, what you might think of with tents or anything. I mean, they have mini fridges and and air conditioning and this, but they are kind of locked in there, not kind of, they are locked in there. And I think that their mental health is really a little bit deteriorated, them and everyone else in there. And part of it is fear that, you know, what are they doing there? Where are they heading? Might they be sent back? And um, I think it's difficult. But um, just to skip way forward in the story, this entire time we've been working on trying to find them a path to resettlement in Canada, and it seems like that's working out. And on December 31st, we got letters of invitation from the Canadian government, which was super crazy lucky and also involved a lot of um, trying to figure out what pathways work and being in touch with a lot actually of Jewish organizations in Canada and non-Jewish, but um, those helped a lot. And then anyway, it's a complicated story, but they do have an invitation and they're hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, going to do their biometrics for Canada in a week or two. So, I mean, things are definitely progressing and I'm hoping and praying that within a month or two, they'll be able to go to Canada. That was that group. So now and why then, are you in Albania? How is this connected to Albania? What so, are you doing in the back of a supermarket in Albania? Yeah. So the truth is, is that, I mean, this has been such a blur. I was saying to you when we were chatting before the show, it's kind of been the best time of my life, but it's also been so intense. And usually I'm a writer and I write everything, but I haven't even written in my diary because one thing has led to another thing. And you know, because I canceled our, I forgot twice that we, you and I were supposed to meet. I just, every day is so jam packed and things come at you from left and right. And you're trying to work on the next thing and trying to figure out, I can't even remember why, we decided to do another mission, except for I think it has to do with two things. One, we we felt that we had, we understood how to do it, which is not nothing. We understood this route from Afghanistan up the border. We had our people in Afghanistan across the border into Tajikistan and from Tajikistan to the UAE. So we had, we sort of thought we'll copy paste and do it all over again. So that was one thing. And the second thing was, you know, there's a lot of, um, 
excitement and pride and sense of um, success when people are evacuated and come out. But of course, it's so much more complicated than that because for everyone that comes out, there's an entire clan, family and friends, but mainly family who are left behind. And especially Afghans usually and typically are very close to their families and live in very extended family units. And inevitably, we only took out, you know, a daughter and a mother or two sisters, or especially when it comes to the cycling team, you know, girls on their own. And, um, and so almost every day, a hundred times a day, members of our group will ask me about their families. And it's just heart-wrenching. And all you want to do is say, yes, let me try and help you. And you think of yourself and what would you do? Wouldn't you really want your brother also to come with you? And especially now that things are incredibly and getting more and more difficult in Afghanistan, I think that there's a lot of guilt. I don't think there's a lot of guilt on the part of those who are out that their families aren't even eating properly, some of them, a lot of them. So I think that Yotam and I and Ronnie and Charlene and people were involved. We wanted to try and see if we could help more people come out. And also everyone who helped us along the way, which was a lot of people, had it turned out some of their own connections to Afghanistan. So, for example, the ambassador that I mentioned before with the passports in Moscow had his own two families that he wanted to help us get out. Or the Afghan ambassador to the UN who also helped us with access to Tajikistan had his family that he needed help with. And the people who helped us on the ground suddenly wanted us to evacuate them as well. I mean, everyone, the sad thing, and also pathetically, of course, can't evacuate. That's not an answer to the crisis that is Afghanistan right now. There's 35 plus million people there and you can't take, of course, even a tiny fraction of those people out. But so basically, to make a long story short, I think with those two thoughts in mind, we suddenly found ourselves back in Tajikistan, to make a long story short, with another group, this time of 167 people, who are now on three different buses, which we went around Kabul again and picked up. And um, in this case, me and Charlene in particular were in touch with little groupings of them. They were very suspicious also. And why wouldn't you be also in such an intense situation? They don't want to be with the whole group. So... You know, we, we had little different family units. You go to this corner, you go to this corner. Everyone was wearing burqas on the on the buses. We thought that was a better idea. So they didn't even know who the other people on the bus were for a little while. And then we started moving that bus up to do the same, same track, and everything fell apart. And I won't go into all the details, but their house was surrounded, their safe house in Kunduz, and then the people we had volunteering to work with us to take them to the border were arrested, and they sort of scattered, and then we tried to get them back together. And meanwhile, me, Rani, and Yotam were on the border of Tajikistan and Afghanistan in this godforsaken border control place. It was like 5 o'clock in the morning, and we thought we were going to be welcoming them across the border. And in fact, three days later, they were still stuck in Afghanistan. And we were still around there in the border trying to figure out another entry place or what to do next, basically. There was a lot of what to do next and a lot of like, oh, no's. And my brothers, meanwhile, are like, do you have any idea what you're doing? And, you know, we didn't really, but we just kept going. And then at the end, we did find a solution. There were lots of other twists and turns to the story. But at the end, the solution involved, um, at this point, there were some flights leaving the country. So there were a flight that we could get a charter, a flight out of Mazar, Mazar al-Sharif. So they drove from Kunduz. They got buses and they drove from Kunduz to Mazar al-Sharif and then flew out of 
Mazar to Tajikistan. And then unlike the first time where they thought we were VIPs, this time they so much didn't want us there that they wouldn't let them out of the airport terminal. So then all these people who'd been through really like hell for a week getting up the country, then spent three days in the airport terminal, in, like in one of those big rooms where you just have um, benches, and only there were only two toilets, and also men and women mixed together and families who didn't know each other. Um, and again, it's only like a 45-minute flight from Mazar to Dushanbe. And so there was an enormous amount of disbelief that, that they were safe. You know, we had to keep assuring them that, no, we were not going back to Afghanistan. The only problem, which we didn't totally spell out, was which she had no further country to go to because the UAE suddenly stopped answering our phone calls for a whole bunch of reasons that also is a long story. But anyway, we couldn't take them to the UAE, and we literally had nowhere to take them. So they're sitting in the airport terminal. We're telling them that we're going somewhere and we have no idea where to go. And your Tom is rebooking and rebooking the airplane charter, which is also not inexpensive. We ended up in Albania and we brought that group here. Some of them already got visas immediately. They were part of the Afghan Olympic team and the cycling team. And those guys, a lot of them got visas to Switzerland, where is the headquarters of the cycling association. And now we're left here with 86 people in Albania and another 42 in Abu Dhabi and both equally have now found we have found for them and with them this um, immigration track to Canada inshallah amazing so I want to go back to this image of you and Yotam and Roni Abulafia on the border of Tajikistan and Afghanistan I mean, these three Israelis who, as you pointed out, have no idea what they're doing, working to get these human beings, some of whom you kind of know and care about, but many of whom you have no idea who they are. You wouldn't have recognized them on a street in a million years. I want to try to get your understanding of what's what's going on in Israel that gets these young people and not so young people, people that are, you know, volunteers at a very young age, people like you who've been a seasoned journalist for many years, Yotam, Roni, what's getting all these Israelis, and you talked about Sally Orban getting involved in this and so many other people. What, I'm speaking to you from Israel, obviously, you're in Albania, but what's going on in this country where I am, Israel, right now, that's that's turning out people like you and Yotam and Roni? What's, what, what, what is it? First of all, I want to say something which goes counter to that, which I hope doesn't disappoint you when I say it, which is that there was a great, great disappointment and shame I had in Israel itself that they didn't open the door to us because we were begging them. And we weren't saying these Afghans are going to come live in Israel forever and, you know, live in Nevei Tzedek and apply for your jobs. We were just saying, take them for a couple months, it was Rosh Hashanah, right? So it was a symbolic moment in time. And these are refugees fleeing, so they felt for their lives, whether their lives are really in danger or not in danger, I'm not sure, but they felt like their lives were truly in danger and they were begging for help and we had nowhere to take them. And why shouldn't Israel, considering we're all Israelis, and you know, there was a lot of support, everyone, a lot of people knew what we were doing because we were knocked on a lot, a lot of doors and that was not possible. And I'm really sorry about that. So that's one thing in an institution. What do you think that's about? I mean, why do you think that was the case? I think that there was a problem with Ayala Chaked. What can I tell you? <laughs> um, and I think that um, 
There was also, she's also had a very hard hands on the African asylum seekers. I mean, she's been exactly. I think that, that there's been such an issue. Look, I looked at the talkbacks online because people. There was some article that was written about Ayala Chaked refusing entry to this group because I think other people in the government and in the president. Um, office were quite in favor of bringing some Afghans over, but I think that she wasn't because she she's not you know very favorably inclined to anything having to do with what she calls infiltrators and a lot of the African you know would be um, asylum or their asylum seekers in in our country. And I saw the talkbacks though, and all kinds of people uh, were saying good for you, Ayala Chike. I mean the opposite of what I would have thought. I thought there'd be a lot of sympathy. I mean who knows who writes talkbacks, but right. they're all you know good for you for not letting these people in. Of course they're Muslim. That's another issue. You know some people don't want to to help out Muslims, I guess. Um, or Afghanistan is not a country that Israel is friends with, fear of the unknown. I, I, th- I mean, look, the regular yeah. Israeli didn't know what was going on, but I think right. that those were the considerations, a lot having to do with our own um, asylum seekers in Israel and how poorly they're treated. So it would seem sort of like, I don't know, wrong to them to bring in a whole plane load. Is, I have I, no idea, and I and I left it behind, and I don't like... You know, whatever. Okay, so but it's a that shame. Is a, that is a, a sad and uh, not terribly pride-filled part of the no, story. No, that's not the best part of the story. But Israelis always, I find, um, I mean, Israelis are good people. I mean, Israelis um, and, and I, 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 Israelis, Yotam and Roni and I are into helping other people. And that I mean, I think it gives most people a lot of joy to do such a thing. And I think that it's not even often that you have an opportunity handed to you to be of such help and when you do get that opportunity i mean i it's so cliche but i feel really lucky that and i think my brothers again sorry that i keep referencing them because they're very important people in my life i think that they are proud of me but more than that like envious like who gets such a chance to be of such assistance you know and I and um, and Ronnie's a big activist. Always, she you knows. Always down in Levinsky, actually helping asylum seekers, and she always goes to demonstrations. She is a believer in things, and and she's an a- activist. And Yotam obviously is the head of an NGO. That that is, you know, exactly what they do all over the world and to any uh, human beings in need. And I'm not either of those two things, but I'm a journalist and I'm an observer, and I really care about. People and how can you not care about someone who seems to be in need? And the other thing to say, I mean, that there are echoes of a lot of people, my family's experience during the Holocaust. Not that the Taliban rising to power is a Holocaust, and I want to make sure to say that it's just not at all, and it's not even clear if, you know what's going to happen under the Taliban regime. And there's some people that hope that Taliban might be a a much, you know, a a different version, you know, whatever it's called, a better version of uh, what they used to be. But that said, you know, my mom's side of the family, they just wrote letter after letter asking for help from, they were all academics and sophisticated, and they wrote lots of letters to their colleagues and friends at universities all over America and Europe. And I think that, Either no one answered them or the answers never reached them because there was no WhatsApp back in the day. And that always um, that always just makes me cry to think about asking for help. And also the way they asked for help was in a very gentle and dignified manner. And I found that there was some echo of that in the way that Afghans were writing to me because even if they were 
terrified for their lives, they always, always start with, hello, Donna John, how are you feeling? How is your family? I mean, I know it's just the Afghan way of talking, but it's very touching. By the way, it's very un-Israeli. And even you're in the middle of a crisis when they were surrounded by the Taliban in Kunduz, when things were all going wrong, they would, I mean, and their kids couldn't drink water. There was no drinking water. They were terrified. Someone was getting beat. They was like, hello, Donna, I hope you're fine. I hope you slept well. I mean, they take like that little moment to, and, and, um, and also a lot of Afghans that we were working with said that people did not respond to them, you know, because, and I now get it because I get so many requests and I feel stressed and overwhelmed by the number of people that write to me for help and send me their documents and send me pictures and explain to me why they are the most vulnerable and need help. And you kind of think, should I write back? Because I do not have anything to offer them right now and maybe not at all. And also, I don't know, this is not like my whole life. I'm not going to spend moving people out of Afghanistan. I don't even know if that's the right thing to do. But, um, but I do think that it is important to write back if only once or twice to say, you know, I'm thinking of you and I'm with you and... And I'm really sorry that you're going through this. So that doesn't totally answer your question. And I don't know if it's anything particularly Israeli. I do want to say one other thing, though, that I have thought about Israeliness and this mission it doesn't have to do with um, kindness or generosity, because I think that might be just particular three people or particular people that that want, want to be kind. But I do think that there is an Israeli, I mean, everyone knows this, like a, a go get them and a chutzpah kind of way of behaving, which is, oh, no problem. We don't have entry visas to Canada, but we can say that we have them because we kind of sort of have them. And it's, you know, no big deal that we don't know the president of Tajikistan, but we can find out who his famous pop star is and call the top manager of pop stars in Los Angeles and ask them to get them to make them a video. I mean, we had creative ideas, I think, not to like pat myself on the back, but we did have some really kooky and creative ideas there. And also just a lot of ideas and we just kept pushing and we made stuff up a little bit along the way. By the way, we had a bit of a falling out with the Canadian lawyers who were working with us to the begin with, because I think they were like, I don't know the word, but appalled might be a word by our, you know, way of working. And your town would say like, just call the head of the Jewish community and he'll get you the letter. And this woman wasn't Jewish. She's Iranian, actually, believe it or not. She's an Iranian, Canadian, well-known, respected, fabulous human rights lawyer. And she's like, what? That's not the way it goes. You have to apply through this and this. And we're like, yeah, forget about that. And just make up the COVID vaccination, you know, and we're like, no, don't say such a thing. <laughs> so um, there was a lot of winging it. And I think that that is an Israeli thing. And by the way, we found great partners in our Afghans because they got a little of Israel in them, or we have a little of Afghan in us and that they're also big wingers and they're big, you know, just try to do anything. A lot of times we got stuck and we turned to them a lot of times, especially, you know, often um, help from high above isn't the thing to do. Like you could be calling Tony Blair who called the, you know, Emir of Qatar who called the Sheikh of this, who called the governor of the province and nothing can happen. But you can then ask the Afghans, Hey, who knows anyone who's a border policeman in Kunduz? And they go, Oh yeah, my roommate's second cousin is actually in the Taliban and he can help us out. And can he also come with us to Canada? So well, that's actually how Israel works all the time. I and mean, we all we all know that. Those of us who live here know that the way you get things done is who do you know? And somebody calls somebody and calls somebody. So it is a kind of a combination, I would imagine, on some level. Look, it's not only Israelis who are doing this extraordinary work, and not all Israelis are doing this extraordinary work. And the state of Israel did not step to the plate, as you pointed out. But 
there is still the story of Roni Abulafia and Yotam Polizer and you, people who are very Israeli, who I think do have a sense of, I've heard this in numerous people, a kind of a sense of some national memory. And as you're saying, like, who cares if we don't know how to do it? We're just going to end up on the Tajikistan Afghani border and we're going to figure this out somehow. That's kind of how this country got put together, you know, with spit in a prayer, as they say. Uh, and it all stuck. And it's um, it's actually enabled you to save lives there and to to change lives and it's just a hugely inspiring story. I mean, our listeners can't our listeners can't see the what I'm seeing. You know, I see in the back little cabinet of this supermarket in Albania. You know, hold up there because it's the only place where you can actually do this broadcast. Um, it's an extraordinary story, and people like you really, I think, do fill us with a tremendous sense of of pride in in humanity, first of all, and in human beings at times of crisis, and in Israelis in times of crisis. Um, you're doing amazing things, you're doing really sacred work, We're really incredibly grateful to you for what you're doing and also very grateful for you, uh, to you for taking time out to share with us your story. Uh, and um, so I'll echo what I'm sure your parents are saying, if they would hear this, which is just, you know, come home safely at some point. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure that uh, that's in their mind too. So we look forward to seeing you back here in Israel. Hope you get back to see your husband in London soon. And um, just wish you all the very best in the really great work that you're doing. Oh, thank you so much, and thanks for listening to that story. Thank you. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.